to yourself from yourself. So, yeah, anyway, we'll just roll with it. Um, I know. I know. It's a, con- it's a continuity thing. It's, uh, um, we are live streaming this morning. Just pretend live stream that we're not doing it. Die Hard. Anyone seen the movie Die Hard? De- Joe knows what I'm talking about. Amazing movie, except like his T-shirt colour changes like three times throughout the movie. It's amazing. <laughs> that if you never knew that, you never notice it. But anyway, sorry, that's going off on a tangent. Well, um, we're starting a new series this morning, and it's a series in the book of Nehemiah, and I'm really excited to actually be able to speak to you about Nehemiah. Our kids are studying Nehemiah too out in their Sunday school, so we have this real gift of being able to learn together and encourage one another. The book ends, Nehemiah ends, in celebration and joyful worship. The exiles who have been scattered and haven't had a place to worship God, are able to come together and celebrate and worship him. It's a new start. It's a new time. There's great joy. There's a sense of something new and good happening. There's a little bit of what we're feeling this morning in being able to come back together. Um, Even while everything is unresolved, we can still come and be God's people and worship together. And it's good to be in his presence, to worship Jesus. And I love that we can spend this time together this morning. It's such a gift. So, as we start, why don't I pray? Lord Jesus, thank you that we can gather in your name this morning. Thank you that you, by your Spirit, are present in in our midst. Thank you that throughout history, you have um, worked with your people, you've been with your people as they've faced challenges, as they have... um, gone through difficult times, that you have led them, you have worked through them, you have inspired them. So we pray that you would work through us. We pray you'd continue to lead us and continue to build your church, um, to do good things in this world through us and in this place. We pray that you build your kingdom here. Amen. So Nehemiah ends in joy, but it starts actually in despair. Uh, I'd love you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles there, you can read along. We're going to be going through the first three and a half chapters today. But this is what it says. It'll be on the screen for you too. The words of Nehemiah, son of (laughs) Hakaliah. Sorry, got that one wrong. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love to those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself 
and my father's family have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws which you gave to your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled peoples are at the furthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, who you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. The book of Nehemiah starts at this really difficult time in the history of Israel. A group had returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. They'd been allowed to go back. They'd started to build the temple, but then the governors and the surrounding uh, leaders um, were worried about this group of Jewish people establishing a foothold back in their land. So they wrote a letter to the king and he put a ban on any of the building or the restoration of Jerusalem. So you have this once proud nation, this nation that knows that it was called by God and saved by God and who served and worshipped the true God of heaven, scattered and just living a subsistence life and not able to have any place to call their own. And when Nehemiah receives this report, it cuts him to the core. The, the disappointment of it, the shame, the fact that they were called to be so much more, that their God was so much greater. He was with them and they'd turned away. That's a horrible place to be in. I don't know, I'm, I'm old enough to know what that regret feels like when you've seen something but you know that you've stuffed it up. And here he is. He's cupbearer to the king. He's a sommelier. I don't know about you, but I reckon cupbearer to the king of Assyria sounds like a job that I could get behind. Um, He basically had to choose the wine. He was drinking buddies with the king. He threw parties. That was his job. It sounds like a pretty good job to me. But it was was actually a really um, respected job as well. And Nehemiah has this sudden realisation that God is calling him to do something else. Here I am, I'm cupbearer to the king, but I'm called to do something else. His heart breaks for the city of Jerusalem and he's got this Holy Spirit-inspired burden within him to say, something needs to happen here. It's not the way it should be. Things need to change. Like He's cupbearer to the king. But he's got this burden on on his heart. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Have you ever had that sense of Holy Spirit-inspired burden? Maybe now, even in the midst of everything that's going on in this time of social and economic and racial and global and medical turmoil, maybe God is laying on your heart something specific, some sense that there's something not right at the moment. Something needs to be done. And maybe um, 
Maybe that's the Holy Spirit going to work in your heart and calling you to something else. This is not the way it should be. This is not the way God wants it to be. I'll move on. I, I love Nehemiah. As you read through the story, you, get, you can't help but love this guy. He's just one of those kind of guys. Um, he's a doer. He's a great leader. He's exceptionally capable as well. But when he first hears the news about Jerusalem, do you know what he does? He fasts and he prays. He spends months just seeking God on his knees, fasting, saying, God, you are the one that we need to change this situation. He, he confesses, he's, he recognises, actually, this issue isn't just something out there that I need to change. It's something that starts with me. I need to confess that I haven't honoured you the way that I should. He begins with confession. Lord, we've sinned. Yet, you haven't abandoned us. That's, that's the other side of the coin. You are faithful. You promised you have a plan for your pe- people, a future and a hope. Both of these truths are really vital. Um, things are broken and they are not the way that they should be. They're not the way that God designed them to be and often the cause for that cuts right through to our own heart. We're caught up in it. We're in a mess. But God has a plan to restore things. He is faithful and wise and patient and he does not give up. He does not grow weary. He doesn't forget. He is a redeemer. Both those things need to be present. And as Nehemiah wrestles with those things, there's this deep brokenness, but God is faithful the reality of the situation and the greatness of God, it starts to solidify for him what needs to happen in Jerusalem. That there is a lining up of who he is and what's happening in the world so that he suddenly starts to realise that he's part of the plan. And he realises that he has a role to play in this plan. And he has influence an opportunity, and he gets this sense that maybe God has been preparing him for this time. So um, we're going to keep moving forward through the story, but before we do, pay attention to what's in your heart this morning. I have no doubt that in this room there are people who have a God-given burden for the things that are broken in this world. And that his call is to come and bring that to him in prayer and discover how you can be a part of that. How he has prepared you for a time such as this. Maybe he's put you in a place. Maybe he's given you opportunities for what he's going to do next. And if so, prayer and discernment are the place where that will solidify towards a specific action. So let's keep going through the story because we've got some ground to cover This is what Nehemiah does. Through prayer, he's kind of got this sense of what God is wanting to do, and then he says, okay, if it's going to happen, give me an opportunity. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, the wine was brought for him. I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I'd not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, 
Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. So this is the opportunity that Nehemiah has been praying for. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to, to, to me, what is it that you want? Um, that's the moment. He's kind of had this opportunity. He's tested out the waters. Then there's this moment. What do you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. You bet he did. He was talking to the king. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of, in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. This is a point where Nehemiah goes back into organization mode. I, I love it. He's um, had an opportunity. He's been given permission He knows what he needs, so he asks for it. He says, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have a letter to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they'll provide me safe passage until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I'll occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I, set, I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When San, Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Um, next week I'm going to share a bit of an update on mainly music, um, but I love the way the team, this term, said... Something needs to change here. We, we need to make a really concerted effort because um, what we're here for is to welcome people into this place, to see parents and preschoolers come into this place so that they can encounter God. And um, it's been great how the team's really rallied behind that. Um, Danny was talking to me um, this week. She's been praying for a friend. Um, she saw her this week. Um, before they met, Danny and Grace were praying and they prayed for an opportunity to invite her along to mainly music. God, we've got a sense that we need to invite this person. Can you open the door? Can you give an opportunity? Um, One of the first things her friend said to her when she walked through the door was, do you go to any play groups? Because I've been wanting to go along for one for a while. Do you know any that I could (laughs) go along to? God opened this door, this opportunity, and Danny took her and she's invited her along. And I love that. I love that God does that. It shouldn't surprise me, but it always does. That when we pray, when we're seeking to do what is good, God provides opportunities. We can trust that he'll do it. He will open a door. My, my temptation is always to rush things. I don't need a door. I'll break through a wall. Um, but to take the time to wait on God, to prayerfully look for that opportunity, Notice too that in the story, Nehemiah is still proactive and organized. He has a plan. He knows what he needs to ask for. Just because God wants to do something doesn't mean that there won't be risk. 
he was taking his life in his hands when he was talking to the king like that because you don't ask the king for things, the king asks you for things. Um, he, he needed to plan. He knew exactly what it would take and how long and where to go. In fact, um, as it goes on, this project's going to take everything that Nehemiah has. Um, just because God's in something doesn't mean that it just falls into place without us having to work and plan. Doesn't mean that there won't be opposition either. If God's wanting to change something, you can guarantee that there will be opposition. Um, things uh, start to get a bit exciting for Nehemiah. So let's keep moving through the story. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I'd not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials didn't know where I'd gone or what I was doing, because as yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. I replied, Let's start. Let us start rebuilding. I love it. All right, let's do it. We're in. So they began the good work. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Gershom the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What's this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success when his servants will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. There's um, some incredible leadership principles in the book of Nehemiah. Um, he could have taken the attitude when he arrived that God has said this, the king sent me, here's what you need to do. Um, I've been given the authority, you do what I say. Uh, that's how I run the ship around here, if, in case you haven't noticed. But um, Nehemiah doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he secretly goes and uh, gets a picture of the cold, hard reality that they'll be facing. He wants to know the full extent of the challenge before them. So he takes the time to go out at night. He takes advisors along with him and get a really good picture of what is this task that we are going to do? What do we need to do here? Good leaders do this. We, um, we kind of see it playing out in the world stage at the moment. I recently read a take on the pandemic that said that the difference between the countries that have done well and those who haven't is not dependent on the system of government that those countries have. It's not dependent on the wealth of those countries. It's not dependent on the culture it comes down to leadership. Those who have done well have had um, leaders who have faced the reality and the truth of the challenge that they've faced. They've 
listened to expert advice, and they've acted upon it. And those who have done poorly have tried to downplay or ignore advice, be it through unfounded optimism or failure to take responsibility to kind of say it's someone else's problem, or self-interest, or a mix of all three of those. Leadership has to start with its feet on the ground in reality, a full assessment of the challenge before us. Because if you don't, you'll get eaten for breakfast. You'll start something and you won't be able to finish. Or you won't take seriously the challenge that's there, and so you'll fail to rise to meet it. So that's what Nehemiah does. He wanders in the night and puts his hand on the wall, gets a good sense of what needs to happen here. Second thing he does, good leaders bring other people on board. They unite people behind a shared vision. Um, Not an individual vision. Nehemiah doesn't come and say, I've got the answers, come follow me. He comes to the people and he says, this is where we are. This is the reality. But, and it's such an important but, but even with this, I believe that God wants to take us here. Together we can do this. Are you with me? What, what happens in that moment, it's a short paragraph in the passage, is that Nehemiah takes his personal calling to go rebuild the, t- t- the walls of Jerusalem and he offers it up to the people and says, are you with me in this? It's a massive risk because the risk is that they'll say no. That's why it's always tempting to just go, we're going to do this regardless of what you think. But Nehemiah knows that they are trying to do something that will require all of them to be invested. Um, They need to do it together. They need buy-in. For this project to happen, it needs to go from a personal calling to a shared vision and purpose that unites the people. Followers are just as important as leaders. It's a community that has a shared vision that is able to build this wall. Third thing, um, do you notice his response to his opposition? Like these guys keep coming back. This is like the war story that Nehemiah is telling at the end of his life about how he faced the challenges that were thrown at him. And Sambalat, Tobiah, and Gershom, they are not his favourite people. <laughs> they're, they're the like villains in this story. They mock him, they question his ability, they question his motivations. And do you know what Nehemiah does? He ignores it. He doesn't get drawn in to having an argument with these people. He doesn't feel as though he has to bring them onto his side He just simply says, we're doing this anyway. Say what you like, we're doing this because God has called us to this. This is where we're going. Great leaders do this. In the face of criticism, they don't sink to the levels of their critics. They don't get caught up in the debate. They restate their convictions. They don't sweat the opposition and they stay focused and they move forward. That's what Nehemiah does. I, um, I would like to be more like Nehemiah. It's such a rich book. Um, there's kind of lots I could share with you, but um, as I finish up, I, I just want to look at the implementation of this plan, how it goes from 
a guy praying in Babylon to walls rebuilt in Jerusalem. Um, We're not going to read chapter 3 either. So in chapter 3, the entire chapter is about who did what on the walls. It's amazing. It's a great chapter. There's over 40 groups of people that walk on the walls. Um, Nehemiah divided the people up into groups, some based on their location, some based on their culture or vocation or interests. He gets groups of people together and assigns them different parts of the wall. You have families building the wall opposite their house. You have the goldsmiths doing the section in front of the jewellery stores. You've got um, this guy, Shalom, son of Haloshesh, <laughs> ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the section with the help of his daughters. I just, I just love that. Men, women, rulers. You've got the poorest of the poor and the most wealthy. Most of the most wealthy. Some of the wealthy just didn't help out and they get cursed for it. But by Nehemiah, he's not too happy with them. Um, there's a guy who builds the dung gate. I love that guy. Imagine being the guy, what did you do in the Jerusalem? I did the dung gate. It's a very important gate. Someone has to build the dung gate. And uh, there's a guy who did that. I love this vision of these smaller communities focusing on what they need to and getting it done. I... Um, I think that there's something in that for us as a church. That's, that's part of the image of what it means to be the church. We work as a community, we do our part, and we focus on the place that God has placed us. Uh, you know, here we are at Glen Osmond Baptist Church. We've got a job to do. There's churches in the suburbs surrounding us, in Adelaide surrounding us, around the world. Each of us has our part to focus on, so let's Focus on that. Get on with the work. Let's focus on our kids. Let's focus on this building that we've been entrusted with to steward well. Let's focus on growing disciples in our small group. I love that you're sitting in small groups today. It's not a coincidence that I've divided you up into smaller groups so that you can focus on that. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Um, Building connections to our community. We've got basketball and mainly music and war vets. Big task or small, we play our part in building the kingdom of God. We come together and focus on what's in front of us and get moving. So let's get on with it without getting discouraged. Let me read to you this uh, last part. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Did you notice that? It wasn't Nehemiah's vision and he wasn't telling them to do it. It was their vision and they worked with all their heart. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, and actually it's a song, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we can't rebuild the wall. That was the song that was getting sung around Jerusalem about halfway through. Also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, 
will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to their work. See, when you're rebuilding a wall, you're vulnerable and you're spread out. And so the plan was to just come in, sneak in amongst them and kill them. Halfway through, the people are feeling pretty spent. Uh, there's this new challenge, enemies gone from ridiculing them to deciding, okay, we need to take some action here, we need to stop this. I don't know if that sounds familiar. Um, that sense of things getting harder than you thought they would be. <laughs> you start off with grand visions and you're like, oh, this is really tricky. <laughs> um, when opposition comes, you've got two choices. You give up or you find a way to carry on. That's it. It's pretty simple. I'm a simple man. The natural tendency, though, is to give up, to go back to how things were before. Um, you see it all throughout the history of the nation of Israel. As soon as God starts doing something, it gets hard. They're like, why shouldn't we go back to Egypt? <laughs> Jesus said, no person, once they put their hand to their plow and look back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So it either be in or be out. Don't keep looking over your shoulders because you can't go where you need to go if you're looking over your shoulders. Um, Francis Drake in the 16th century said, Grant us, O Lord, to remember that it's not the undertaking of any great matter, but the continuing of the same until it be thoroughly finished, which yieldeth true glory. I love that saying. So Nehemiah gathers the people and helps them to stop looking backwards and start looking forwards. Um, we've got a saying in our family, it's, don't look back, you're not going that way. It's really helpful advice because uh, it's really easy to dwell on the things that you should have done. Some of my little people in my family are experts at dwelling on the things after they've done them. So it's, don't look back, you're not going that way. Work out how to move forward, to do something different in the future. Um, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have a hope and a future. It's not some sickly, unrealistic hope. It's a hard-fought, unyielding, costly, one foot after the other, it is finished kind of hope. That's the hope that we have, that no matter where we are, God is at work and we have a hope and a future. Jesus is restoring and his kingdom will come. After I looked things over... I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When the enemy heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, Half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried material did work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. Uh, not great oc health and safety to be building with a sword in your hand, but apart from that, it's um, probably better than the option of getting attacked while you're building. 
Nehemiah takes the time to remind the people of what's at stake. He says, yes, there is a threat. There is a challenge out there and we need to be realistic about it. We need to be on guard. But we also need to realise that God is at work. He is great. That this is our time. We either step up now for the sake of our kids and our families or we go back to being subsistence farmers with no hope and no future. It's funny how um, you don't realise you're in history when it's happening. Uh, um, I've been reflecting the last few weeks on what kind of stories my kids will tell their kids about this time in the world. It's a really interesting thing to be in the middle of history. We often forget that. We think that history challenge shaping the future is something that happened in the past and now we just enjoy the fruits of that. No, we're in the midst of history right now. We have challenges before us. We have a future to build for our kids. We have a God who's at work. Um, I was reminded of this psalm this week and I'm going to read it. I, I'm not sure why, but I think it speaks into this time. Um, it's, uh, it's actually from Isaiah 35. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Waters will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I think it's really important that we're reminded of that this morning, that in the midst of everything, God is at work. He has a plan. So uh, that's why we're here. This place is about life, life for you, life for your children, life for your neighbours, your friends, your family. The alternative is death. I don't often talk that dramatically, but um, the invitation for Jesus is come and have life. Through Jesus Christ, death has no hold on us. We aren't going that way. So let's head towards life. We may be tired, we may have some challenges ahead. I'm not sure what the next little while in Australia and Adelaide means for us. Some of you, like me, are really optimistic and think, oh, we're done, we're through, we'll be going. Some of you think this is just the beginning, probably. I don't know. But don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. Fight for your families, for your sons and your daughters, your wives and your neighbourhoods. Do it with prayer, do it with fasting, with the Bible in one hand and a bottle of hand sanitizer in the other hand. Um, Together, let's 
build the good work, the kingdom that Jesus has called us to. And um, let me challenge you personally, actually. Maybe God has put something on your heart. Maybe more than just the generalness of uh, what I'm talking about, maybe there's a discontent. Maybe he's prepared you for a time such as this. Um, I'm going to invite you to stand together right now. And Sarah's going to play keys, which is awesome. Thanks, Sarah. I know you want me to draw attention to it. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'd invite you to stand. We stand as an act of uh, response to who God is. Um, If the Spirit is kind of placing something on your heart or there's that discontent there, can I really encourage you to speak to the people in your small group, in your section about it, to pray with them, um, to actually spend that time to discern what is God saying right now? What is he preparing you for? And what door is he wanting to open? So... Let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we know that you prayed for your church. You prayed that we would be one, just as you are one with the Father. You pray that we would be united. Your prayer was not that you would take us out of this world, but that you would protect us and that you would send us out into the world to continue on your um, kingdom, your work to build. Lord Jesus, I pray that we wouldn't miss that. Uh, We confess this morning that we fall short, that we've failed in our heart and our action in the past, but we believe that you made us for a time such as this. We pray that you would have your way in us. We thank you for the kids that are here. We pray that we would build something great for them that we would see a generation rise up who know you, who put their trust in you, who have um, the leadership and the ability to focus on you and build a great future. And we pray that you'd do it for your glory and your name's sake. Amen. Uh, The kids are just coming back in. Do I need to hand over?